0: friends, friends that are family, and family that are friends. This is Eddie with the TBD Network, also the TBD Podcast Network. The TBD Network is a thinker's podcast covering subjects and ideas that can advance the mental fortitude and critical thinking in an effort to further humanity through casual conversation. But right now, you are listening to The Jimmy James Show, A to Z. Have a good one.
1: Oh, thank you. This is the Jimmy Jane Show A to Z. (sighs) Come find out what is wrong with me. (laughs) Thank you, my friend. This is for Richard, John 316. It's three minutes and sixteen. This beat is called John three sixteen seconds, 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 three seconds. John three sixteen, John three sixteen, John three sixteen. John 316 John 316 Somebody who's a good man, this is for you, Richard. We're going to make this three minutes and sixteen seconds count. Let's go. This is Jimmy James, being humbled by a good friend. Vertical Momentum. Vertical Momentum. talking about his life and all his struggles, but right now, sit back and enjoy the rest of this. Vertical. Vertical Momentum. Thank you Richard, to an awesome friend. And I meant it when I said this piece for you. 316 out.
2: History Ancient Greece Leonidas versus Xerxes A god in his time of Persia Leonidas at Thermopylae, 1814 Leonidas, DC 480 BC King of Sparta from 491 BC Held pass at Thermopylae for three days with 300 Spartans and 700 Thespians against the Persian army. Leonidas and his followers all died. Xerxes and the Persian invasion. Battle of Thermopylae. After the battle. Leonidas, c. 530-480 to 480 B.C was a king of the city-state of Sparta from about 490 BC until his death at the Battle of Thermopylae against the Persian army in 480 BC. Although Leonidas lost the battle, his death at Thermopylae was seen as a heroic sacrifice because he sent most of his army away when he realized that the Persians had outmaneuvered him. 300 of his fellow Spartans stayed with him to fight and die. Almost everything that is known about Leonidas comes from the work of the Greek historian Herodotus, C. 484, C. 425 BC. Training as a hoplite. Leonidas was the son of the Spartan king Anaxandrides, died C. 520 BC. He became king when his older half-brother Cleomenes I, also a son of Anaxandrides, died under violent, and slightly mysterious, circumstances in 490 BC without having produced a male heir. Did you know? The Thermopylae Pass was also the site of two other ancient battles. In 279 BC, Gallic forces broke through Greek forces there by using the same alternate route that the Persians did in 480 BC. In 191 BC, the Roman army defeated an invasion of Greece by the Syrian king Antiochus III at Thermopylae. As king, Leonidas was a military leader as well as a political one. Like all male Spartan citizens, Leonidas had been trained mentally and physically since childhood in preparation to become a hoplite warrior. Hoplites were armed with a round shield, spear and iron short sword. In battle, they used a formation called a phalanx, in which rows of hoplites stood directly next to each other so that their shields overlapped with one another. During a frontal attack, this wall of shields provided significant protection to the warriors behind it. If the phalanx broke or if the enemy attacked from the side or the rear, however, the formation became vulnerable. It was this fatal weakness to the otherwise formidable phalanx formation that proved to be Leonidas undoing against an invading Persian army at the Battle of Thermopylae in 480 BC. How ancient Sparta's harsh military system trained boys into fierce warriors. How ancient Sparta's harsh military system trained boys into fierce warriors read more read more about how ancient sparta's harsh military system trained boys into fierce warriors xerxes and the persian invasion ancient greece was made up of several hundred city-states of which athens and leonidas sparta were the largest and most powerful although these many city-states vied with one another for control of land and resources they also banded together to defend themselves from foreign invasion twice at the beginning of the 5th century BC Persia attempted such an invasion in 490 BC the Persian king Darius I 550 to 486 BC instigated the initial such attempt as part of the first Persian war but a combined Greek force turned back the Persian army at the battle of Marathon 10 years later during the second Persian war one of Darius sons Xerxes I c. 519-465 BC, again launched an invasion against Greece. Battle of Thermopylae. Under Xerxes' eye, the Persian army moved south through Greece on the eastern coast, accompanied by the Persian navy moving parallel to the shore. To reach its destination at Attica, the region controlled by the city-state of Athens, the Persians needed to go through the coastal pass of Thermopylae, or the, Hot Gates, so known because of nearby Sulphur Springs. In the late summer of 480 BC, Leonidas led an army of 6,000 to 7,000 Greeks from many city-states, including 300 Spartans, in an attempt to prevent the Persians from passing through Thermopylae. Leonidas established his army at Thermopylae, expecting that the narrow pass would funnel the Persian army toward his own force. For two days, the Greeks withstood the determined attacks of their far more numerous enemy. Leonidas' plan worked well at first, but he did not know that there was a route over the mountains to the west of Thermopylae that would allow the enemy to bypass his fortified position along the coast. A local Greek told Xerxes about this other route and led the Persian army across it, enabling them to surround the Greeks. Much of the Greek force retreated rather than face the Persian army. An army of Spartans, Thespians, and Thebans remained to fight the Persians. Leonidas and the 300 Spartans with him were all killed, along with most of their remaining allies. The Persians found and beheaded Leonidas' corpse, an act that was considered to be a grave insult. After the battle, Leonidas' sacrifice, along with that of his Spartan hoplites, did not prevent the Persians from moving down the Greek coast into Boeotia. In September 480 BC, however, the Athenian navy defeated the Persians at the Battle of Salamis, after which the Persians returned home. Nonetheless, Leonidas' action demonstrated Sparta's willingness to sacrifice itself for the protection of the Greek region. Leonidas achieved lasting fame for his personal sacrifice. Hero cults were an established custom in ancient Greece from the 8th century BC onward. Dead heroes were worshipped, usually near their burial site, as intermediaries to the gods. Forty years after the battle, Sparta retrieved Leonidas' remains, or what were believed to be his remains, and a shrine was built in his honor.
0: Did you ever wonder about Achilles? As orthopedic surgeons, we frequently evoke his name while examining the foot and ankle. Most of us think he was a mythologic Greek hero. The truth is that there may well have been a real Thessalian warrior, later mythologized by his semi-literate people. The story goes that his mother, Thetis, made him invulnerable by dipping him in the river Styx while he was still an infant. The problem was that she held him by the heels, which were not wetted, this remained a vulnerable part of his anatomy. Achilles became a great warrior and slew Hector of Troy in battle. Hector's father, Priam, was suffered to remove the body for cremation. All of Troy mourned the death. In his final battle, at the very gates of Troy, Paris, guided by the god Apollo, launched the arrow that fatally struck Achilles in his vulnerable heel. Achilles was cremated and his ashes buried in the same urn as those of his friend Patroclus. This was well, because it was said that Achilles and Patroclus shared the love that dares not speak its name. Is all of this just mythology? Could there be at least some minimal correspondence with actual story? Biblical archaeologists and historians have talked about the epic theory of history. The story of Gilgamesh preceded our own Judeo-Christian themes and bears some striking similarities. Heinrich Schliemann excavated the mound at Hisarlik in the Dardanelles in 1873, finding convincing evidence that this was indeed the site of ancient Troy. Schliemann also excavated a cumulus or mound that was said to contain the remains of Achilles. Finding no bones, he concluded this was really a cenotaph or memorial, rather than an actual burial place. This all still evokes interest and speculation. In all, it is easy to understand why due consideration of the subject should be of paramount importance to the practicing orthopedic surgeon. God forbid that any one of us should be in the position of recommending surgery on the heel cord for a professor of the classics or the like. The purpose of our paper is to start your ruminations on a topic you might be called upon to discuss. Suppose that Achilles, or a reasonable prototype, really did exist. How could an arrow shot to the heel kill anyone, mortal or immortal? On the face of it, some imagination is required. Revert then, to your days in physical diagnosis class and run through the categories. Infectious the tip of the arrow could have been smeared with Clostridium perfringens, Yersinia pestis, or the like. Biological warfare was known to have been practiced in the Middle Ages. Do you remember stories of pestilence victims being hurled over city walls by catapults or trebuchets? Did Hippocrates, for whom we have accounts of chronic shoulder dislocations being cured with a red hot iron poker inserted into the shoulder, attempt to repair Achilles tendon? A post-operative wound infection with subsequent gangrene and osteomyelitis may have caused Achilles' demise. Lister, for all his contributions to asepsis, sepsis, had not been born yet. Did atelectasis set in while he was bedridden? As far as I know, the incentive spirometer had not been invented yet. Nor had antibiotics, for the ensuing pneumonia, for that matter. And what of his last tetanus shot? Toxic, South American natives routinely hunt with darts dipped in karari. How about botulism toxin? Wolffinch does, without attribution or further details, state that when Paris shot Achilles in the heel, it was with a poisoned arrow. Recall now Philoctetes, son of Pous. He was bitten on the foot by a poisonous water snake. The wound putrefied and it was said that the anaerobic odor could be smelled miles away. Here, however, the king of Ithaca, Odysseus Ulysses rescued him and he was eventually cured. The tip of the arrow may have been made with metal. Was this metal lead? Metabolic was Achilles suffering from hyperthyroidism. In the days before Dull in the 1800s nothing was known about the thyroid. Maybe the pain caused a thyroid storm. Congenital the posterior tibial artery lies in close proximity to the Achilles tendon. Although nothing suggests it, maybe Achilles suffered from hemophilia and bled to death. Immunologic the arrow was made with a multitude of materials. Achilles may have been allergic to any one of them and succumbed to deadly anaphylaxis. Traumatic a pulmonary embolus in the post-injury time frame could be postulated. There are precedents for trauma to explain historical events of mythology. Oedipus, as a baby, was tied by the feet and left hanging from a tree till rescued by a peasant. Thereafter he was called Oedipus, or swollen foot. He obviously survived, but went on to kill his father bed his mother, and tear his eyes out in remorse. Again, the ancient seemed challenged with regard to feet. Let's not forget about compartment syndrome. Psychiatric maybe, Achilles, having proven himself such a great warrior, all of a sudden finding himself maimed, suffered a severe bout of depression and could only find peace by ending his own life. Evolutionary was this a case of Darwinism? Having been injured, unable to move and hence, an unfit organism, he may just as well have been slain on the battlefield. In conclusion, there was an ancient Troy, and also probably a mythologized prototype for Achilles. Think about it. The next time you want to get one up on a fellow orthopedic surgeon, just casually start a conversation about poor Achilles. It is also an excellent topic to harass innocent orthopedic residents with, as one of us CL has already learned, This is the third and final story. For my pops. Braveheart is a thrilling film, but it's one of the least historically accurate movies ever made. They may take our lives, but they'll never take our freedom. The speech by William Wallace is one of the most famous in film history. To a generation of moviegoers, Mel Gibson's Braveheart cemented William Wallace's place as one of the greatest military leaders of all time. Gibson's film portrays William Wallace as a reluctant hero who draws his sword in vengeance after his beloved wife is murdered. It then proceeds to tell the story of his life, exploring some of his key battles, and ultimately ends on a tragic note, as Wallace is betrayed and put to death by the English. Braveheart's conclusion is an optimistic one, however, presenting him as the inspiration for Robert the Bruce, who would ultimately lead Scotland to freedom. Unfortunately, as thrilling as the film may be, in truth, it's generally considered one of the least historically accurate movies. That's largely because Braveheart director and star Mel Gibson drew upon the account of a bard named Blind Harry, a storyteller who claimed to use primary sources when writing his account of Wallace, but probably didn't Blind Harry wrote about William Wallace about 100 years after the events of his life happened, and it's unknown how much of his accounts were fact. All this means Braveheart should be seen as a movie based on a fictional account loosely inspired by historical events, and it's no surprise the film is historically inaccurate. William Wallace wasn't Braveheart at all. Braveheart is actually attributed to Robert the Bruce's literal heart. A blended image features a painting of Robert the Bruce, Chris Pine as Robert the Bruce An Outlaw King, and Mel Gibson as William Wallace in Braveheart. Braveheart rejoices in its inaccuracies, owning them from the start, because even the title is wrong. Most viewers will naturally assume, Braveheart refers to William Wallace, but the name is actually associated with Robert the Bruce. According to the 14th century writer John Barber, Robert the Bruce always regretted not going on a crusade. He had one of his knights swear to take his heart to Spain in a silver case after his death, so he could find some way of participating in a crusade. In the heat of battle, this knight threw the urn containing the heart at the opposing army, crying out, Lead on Brave Heart, I'll follow thee. Braveheart's title has nothing to do with William Wallace, nor is the reason for the name ever shown in the film, thankfully. Interestingly, other scenes involving Robert the Bruce in the movie are also historically inaccurate. Robert the Bruce is portrayed as a noble who betrays William Wallace more than once in his battles against the English, but that didn't happen. That's largely because Robert the Bruce initially wasn't involved in the Scottish rebellion against the English at all. The Bruce clan had a legitimate claim to the Scottish throne, but the country itself was in so much turmoil that they didn't push for the claim but bided their time until there was enough Scottish support for rebellion. That's why Robert the Bruce is said to have been inspired by Wallace, taking up the cause after Wallace's death. William Wallace's backstory in Braveheart is completely fictional. William Wallace did not grow up as the child of farmers. Mel Gibson as William Wallace in Braveheart. Mel Gibson plays the role of William Wallace well, opening with an account of Wallace's formative years designed to make him sympathetic. Unfortunately, it's largely ahistorical, because in reality, Wallace was a lesser noble, his father and brother certainly didn't die in battle against the English. In fact, by the time conflict with the English came to a head, William Wallace was already an adult, not a child watching his older family members go to battle. Although Blind Harry does give an account of Wallace's wife dying in similar circumstances to the film, his version of Wallace is already a bloodthirsty war leader. Interestingly, Blind Harry doesn't appear to have named Wallace's wife at all, with the name, Miranda, added by later scholars who copied his manuscripts and Marion used by others, which isn't used in the movie so as not to sound similar to the legend of Robin Hood. Braveheart goes for a more traditional name, Maron. Braveheart makes up the reason for William Wallace's war on the English. William Wallace did not go to war for his wife, Patrick McGoohan as King Edward. William Wallace's war on the English had nothing to do with revenge in the real world and it was certainly nothing to do with the, noble right, of Just Primae Noctis, the right of a noble to sleep with a local bride on her wedding night. Although accounts of Just Primae Noctis run all the way back to the epic of Gilgamesh some 4,000 years ago, there's actually no historical evidence it was ever the nobles were bribed. As the clock strikes twelve, the year's final hour, a hush descends, anticipation devours. In the darkness of night, a magical bliss, a moment of enchantment, the midnight kiss. Whispers of hope fill the air all around, hearts beating faster, love's symphony resounds. Eyes meet, souls entwine as the stars align, a tender connection, a love so divine. Underneath the moon's soft and gentle glow, two souls come together, their love on show. Lips brush against lips, a sweet taste of bliss.
1: All right, all right, all right, this is Matthew McConaughey saying check out jimmy james while i drive away my lincoln yeah hey what's up guys this is jimmy james and i'm here to tell you one more freaking time fuck it let me do that again this is jimmy james telling you one more fucking time you must Now, according to Spotify, can you please go to uh, Spotify and follow me? Because that's the only way I can even get a red cent. Please follow me. I'm begging you, follow me. I got no food on the table. Follow me. They won't pay me anymore. They said I need a certain amount of followers on Spotify. Please go follow me. I'll do anything. Anything you say, I'll do it. But, alright, I'm just getting a little carried away. Um, if you can, um, <clears throat> yes, um, if you can, um, please follow me on Spotify. Um, I'll, pu- I'll put the, I'll put the link in there. Um, oh, and, uh, also, goodbye. Bye, world. Okay, Jim, I'll see you around. Where you going? No.
0: Oh, oh, no. Oh, that's not what I thought he meant by that at all. Goodbye, everybody.
1: Now, usually I do raplets and text-to-speech shit on poetry. AI bullshit. Fuck it. This is a new beat down. Now listen. Think you could do better? Let's say.